Алекса, стоп. A podcast about how technology is changing our lives. With Robert Belgrave and Jim Bowes. And indeed, I am Jim Bowes. You are listening to Alexa Stop. And sat opposite me is the man himself, Mr. Robert Belgrave. How are you? I'm very well. Good evening, Jim. How are you today? Yeah, really good. I've got the beautiful view out from the studio. I can see greenery. The sun is in the sky. There's a whole week of good weather planned. A 20 degree day after what feels like months of desolate grey and cold. And uh, I guess we're here, we're in the studio, Alexa Stop podcast, talking about how technology changes people's lives. And this is a special episode. It is indeed. And this episode is all about the magic that is TED. And for those of you that aren't familiar, TED is an incredible vehicle for people to talk about weird and wonderful things that are changing the world. Ideas worth sharing, ideas worth talking about. And something that both Jim and I have taken a lot of inspiration from, I think it's fair to say, over the years. Yeah, some of the some of the t- TED Talks have definitely been part of my work and part of my inspiration uh, for things that I've done. And we're really, really fortunate tonight. We've got uh, Dan Machen coming on later in the programme uh, to talk about his talk. Um, what's it about? So Dan was lucky enough to give a TED Talk this year. And uh, Dan is someone that I met some years ago when I actually saw him talk at a conference and have subsequently become friends. Dan is just a great speaker, uh, worked in the loosely in the field of marketing, I suppose, but has been an agency guy since the 90s and has sort of seen the whole thing evolve. And uh, Dan gave a fascinating talk called The Unchanging Man, all about what technology is doing to our brains from a kind of neuroscience point of view and, and just sort of grounding that in behavioural economics and the design philosophy behind things like Facebook and and just an amazing talk that I really enjoyed. So genuinely delighted to have him joining us today to unpack some of that and, and allow us to kind of cross-examine him on, on some of those themes. And we're going to pick a couple of TED Talks that we uh, we like as well along the way. But I suppose it's time to say, it's the news, it's the news, it's the news, it's the news... So first big story from, from well, the last month since we recorded episode two was the WannaCry ransomware outbreak that brought the NHS to its knees. Have you been following this, Jim? Is ransomware like clothes that you uh, get and then you have to pay a ransom to someone? I'm sure in some places in the world it probably is. But in the context of the uh, stories that have been all over the BBC, ransomware is this rather terrible form of computer virus that sort of locks down your computer as best it can and then holds your files and your data to ransom, quite literally, by asking you to pay some money to an anonymous Bitcoin wallet, which is a digital currency, uh, in exchange for, you know, returning your computer to full working order. And the the actual amount it asks for isn't huge, is it? No, it's not. I mean, I, I think it worked out to be about $300 from each individual computer that had been locked down. And... Normally, for home use, this perhaps wouldn't be that big a deal. I mean, $300 to most households, okay, it's a lot of money, but it's sort of an accessible amount of money. And the the, the magic of these pieces of software is that it's really a genuine thing. Like, it's not really in the hacker, you know, the hackers who write this stuff, it's not really in their interest to not release your files if you pay. So actually, if you pay the money, it genuinely does unlock your computer and you do get your files back. Not that I'm advocating you should do that, but yeah. Yeah, and I suppose that the thing about this that's interesting is that actually um, home users that keep their computers up to date wouldn't really be at risk from this because an update was issued in March by Microsoft. Yeah, so, I mean, let's let's sort of drill into what happened with, with this whole outbreak. So ransomware is by no means a new thing. It's It's been going on for many years. And one of the most prominent ones was called CryptoLocker, which was very big sort of three or four years ago. 
But there hasn't been a sort of global outbreak like this at all, I guess, certainly not in recent times. And so this was very high profile from a, a news cycle perspective because not only did it go global and impact some huge organisations such as the NHS, but it exploited a backdoor that had been created by the American government, by the NSA, which is a highly controversial area in the technology community. And this bug or this, this exploit was disclosed to the world in March, as you say, and Microsoft immediately released a patch for it. And it took until May for that to be exploited. So, you know, most upstanding organisations, certainly most home users, had already updated by then and therefore were not vulnerable to this exploit. But the problem is that large IT networks, for example, the NHS, and particularly organisations with, uh, you know, ageing estates of computers, just don't get round to getting these updates applied in a timely fashion. And a friend of mine works in banking and he works for HSBC and he talks about how they have to evaluate the cost of the risk of rolling out an update in terms of the disruption it could cause just due to the scale of their operations. So it's really interesting that it might seem like a really easy thing to do, but actually for some organisations it's really not, which is a real problem and something we're going to have to solve as a, as a tech community. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I've worked in some large organisations and, and you become incredibly cognizant of just how many laptops or how many computers there are in an organisation. You're cognizant that places have Easter change freezes and Christmas change freezes when you can't roll out any updates to any systems unless they fulfil certain criteria or if they're signed off by people of a certain seniority. Uh, and it's quite easy for things to get delayed, particularly, I guess, March isn't that long ago. And so it, it's easy for something to get delayed a month or two. And most organisations that I work with have some kind of monthly patching process, but maybe at a certain point in time, you know, monthly becomes too slow as well for these sorts of things. Yeah, absolutely, it does. Talking about the topic of good security, why don't we move on to another great segment from the news over the last month. So, Amazon have unveiled the Echo Look. Have you seen this, Jim? Um, well, I've, I've had a quick look at the look, but my understanding is that, that essentially there's now going to be an Amazon Echo that can take pictures of you. Yeah, so... Amazon have announced this new product called the Echo Look, which is the latest in their family of Echo devices, whether the name of this podcast heralds from. I'm trying not to say it as to avoid triggering the devices in people's homes, having had some polite comments about that. The Echo Look is essentially a selfie camera that is designed to sit in your wardrobe or certainly in your bedroom. And it sort of captures this movement of the what you're wearing today Instagram crowd and sort of combines that with essentially a digital full length mirror. I don't know about you, but I, as a six foot four framed man, have often struggled to have a full length mirror in my house that actually allows me to see all of my outfit, which when you're on the days where you're trying to look sharp is a bit of a problem. You just need to walk backwards, Rob. Maybe I need a larger house, Jim. Uh, <laughs> clearly your, your house has, has some nice big rooms where that would be possible, but... I'm um, just a shorter man. <laughs> uh, maybe that helps too. So the Echo Look, really interesting piece of innovation. And on the face of it, and I actually had this reaction to it, I thought that's a really clever idea and I could almost imagine using something like that one day. But then you stop and you reflect on what they're actually doing. And the idea is that not only... Do this, does this thing stream full-length photos of you to your phone for you to kind of review your outfits and take them with you wherever you go and show them to your friends and share them and all that good stuff. But it stores these photos as well. And Amazon plan to use this to, over time, build in a sort of automated personal shopper for you that will make recommendations based on what you wear, which outfits you liked, and, and allowing you to sort of score different outfits and so on. But what came out over the last few weeks is that Amazon have said they are never going to delete any photos taken by these devices, 
or rather they can't guarantee they will. So even if you delete the photos yourself, Amazon will still be using those photos in their huge deep learning AI algorithm that they're going to deploy on this thing. And given the, the intimate nature of what goes on in some bedrooms, I'm not sure that's something I would really like in my life. I think maybe that's a step too far in terms of the invasive nature of having a, an internet connected camera with perpetual storage in my bedroom. What do you think? It could also take pictures of things that you wouldn't really want your personal shopper to suggest. Such as? Your penchant for pineapple, maybe? Or... <laughs> I don't know. What, what else might there be that you... Maybe it's just taking pictures all the time while you're in, in, in outfits. You know, I mean, I've got some cactus print boxer shorts. And... Oh, I'm with you. Right. Maybe you're in your fancy dress for going to a party or something and suddenly... And it's you're... just snapping away. Fake yeah. beards start turning up on your Amazon Prime delivery or something like I that. I suppose you could, there could be a whole sort of, you know, deliberate affecting of people's uh, Amazon Echo look so that it suggests clothes for them that are wholly inappropriate. <laughs> <laughs> that actually is a great game. I think maybe we should buy one and just do that with them. You know, like that sort of a wedding party dress-up game. So you'll just be sneaking into your friend's bedrooms uh, to playing dress-up games just so that then... Because we were talking about this earlier, actually, and, and the idea that, that, you know, there are some of those fashion recommendation services like Thread or Chapa. Yeah. Uh, and and we there's a clear reason why you would want to integrate these with a sort of fashion market yeah look, on the face of it it's a really smart thing to do i guess but i for me the issue is around privacy and, and ownership of data which might sound a bit boring but as someone that has worked in technology i've just seen how over time people have become less and less aware i guess just just people seem more willing these days to share their data without really knowing where it's going to end up or how it's going to be used. And I think that's a very, very dangerous trend and something that we should all keep a close eye on. And I suppose data is the fuel of sort of machine learning, isn't it? And so that's why I guess people have to make an individual judgment as to whether the data that they're giving up uh, is warranted for the reward they're hoping to get. Absolutely. And, you know, this brings us to another interesting thing from the news. There's an amazing project called the 80,000 Hours Project, which is a not-for-profit, so you can find it at 80,000hours.org. The idea is that in your career, in a typical career, you work for 80,000 hours. And so this not-for-profit has been set up to help people find something meaningful to spend those hours on, making sure that they're really driving the world forward. And I think this is very timely given that the generations entering the workplace now, the analysts tell us are far more motivated by purpose than they are by money. And it really means a lot to people in this day and age to do something good, which fills my heart with joy, frankly. I think it's a, a great trend and, and long may it continue. So one piece that's on there is around positively shaping artificial intelligence. You talked about about data is oil and is sort of becoming this currency, and I, I couldn't agree more. And so this piece is all around how the next industrial revolution is almost certainly artificial intelligence, and it's something we've talked about on this podcast before and no doubt will again. There's a lot of money being spent on developing the algorithms and the systems and the robots that are going to benefit from all of this wonderful technology, but there isn't a whole lot of work or money, for that matter, being spent on the ethics of it and making sure that these pieces of technology are developed responsibly and that they're rolled out into our lives in a way that is going to enhance our lives, not ruin them or, or certainly not ruin them for large patches of the population of the, of the world. So an amazing project. And we are on the cusp of something really incredible. And data is going to be the fuel. Like Data is the key to all of this stuff. So yeah, a very timely, timely discovery, that piece. I suppose it's, it's all about how optimistic you are about humanity's ability to sort of manage itself and 
uh, its eth- ethical position on how things work or whether we'll get crazed. I think you, we see things, even still in agriculture, there's going to be huge changes in how food is produced and right. genetically modified was a big was a big thing well i suppose um you know artificial intelligence machine learning are sort of in the same vein you know what what is it okay to use machine learning to do yeah and i guess it's a great reference you make to the gm food stuff because initially it was really cool and everyone was like great and then there was that huge backlash and only now i mean what 10 15 years on from that initial trend it, it seems to be finding its place as a sort of accepted piece of technology in certain certainly in certain countries seem to be okay with it anyway yeah um and i think you know great great comparison to draw there i think ai and and this stuff is going to go along a similar route we could maybe make some incredible mashup of uh, gm versus ai or something i I, that's an event i would love to attend artificially intelligent tomatoes that uh, modify their genetics based on how people will feel uh, most positive towards them yeah, maybe some sort of fruit versus robot rap battle in there. Yeah, automated genetic modification. It's actually not that far-fetched, is it? I hate that the answer is no. It's not. Wow, what a world we live in. So, yeah, those were some, some great bits from the news and, and a couple more bits that we, you know, Jim and I picked out that we thought were fascinating from the last month. There's a big eclipse due in August. And there's an amazing article. You love an eclipse, don't you, I Rob? love an eclipse. Nothing like an eclipse. Preferably a full eclipse. The half eclipse just doesn't quite do it for me. My favourite is the total eclipse of the heart. Oh, well. Rob, you know, just tell me, why is this eclipse important? <laughs> I will. I will tell you exactly why this eclipse is important. Of all the countries in the world, I could not quite believe what I was reading. America is now so dependent on generating electricity through solar energy that they're going to have a really big problem when the August eclipse hits. And... Obviously, that's a concern, right? Because going without power in certain parts of America will be a big problem for communities and all the kind of fallout you would expect. But just let that sink in for a minute. America has got to a place where it generates enough of its core electricity supply from solar, totally renewable solar energy, that an eclipse is going to cause them such a big problem. They're having to make significant plans and start like storing extra energy and big battery capacitors and stuff now. My mum was a bit of a hippie and, uh, and brought me up to think that renewables was a really important part of us protecting our planet and, and so forth. And, and it just feels like a really special day for me to be able to say that to you, particularly from a country like America that has not been particularly progressive in its climate regulation. So, yeah, I thought that was a really special story, right? And, and, and my heart goes out to those people that may be left without power in August, but equally I'll be celebrating too because I think it's a, a wonderful turning point and it can only get better from here. It seems to me that it's important that you chose to say that on something pre-recorded before then uh, because had we been in America trying to record this, we might have struggled We to. might have had a problem. Although the sun is still shining right now. so The sun is shining here, it's true. Um, so one other story that, that caught uh, our attention this month was... We've talked about this before, so Internet of Things home devices... And this is about permanent denial of service attacks. Well, this is sort of segues nicely into the stories from my CTO, as we've had on our previous two episodes that have been so popular. Does that have a jingle? It, it might do. Is it like stories from Rob's CTO? That's a little bit creepy. We might have to go with something a little, little more upbeat. I don't know. Stories from Rob's CTO. There it is. There it is. With a sort of hoedown vibe. I'm liking that. So... <laughs> After last month's story, and if you haven't listened to episode two, go and check it out. We're doing our best not to further incriminate my CTO. He's in prison, isn't he? Yeah, he's yeah. I haven't had a chance to get a third story from him. Is he locked in a car wash in Basingstoke? He's he's currently counting out the the coppers to pay back his, his debt. So I thought I'd have a throwback story from him this month, which was many months ago, 
he came in one Monday morning and I asked him in conversation at the, by the coffee machine, as you do, how was your weekend? To which he replied, good. I made a weather station for my house, which led me to ask him, why did you do that? You know, I'm thinking, well, isn't the app on your phone good enough? Did you really need to do that? And his response was simply, because I could, which I think tells you all you need to know about the mind of a CTO. It's a beautiful thing. But rather than something he did, something he shared with me, I thought I could bring, which perhaps is a, a, you know, a little more thorough than uh, my brief anecdote about weather stations. So there's an amazing thing going on out there on the internet, and it's a hacker who, coming back to our discussion about white versus black hat, you could probably argue the toss on, on him being a bit of both, actually. But there's a hacker who goes by the code name He's Punk. He's Punk, exactly. New Age. His uh, handle, as they say, is janitor, with a zero for the O, obviously. And what he's doing is he's created this thing that's been dubbed the Brickabot. Now, bricking, if you're not familiar with the term, is to permanently damage a piece of hardware such that it cannot be resuscitated. Not mechanically speaking, not like smashing it up with a sledgehammer from a software point of view, making it irreparably destroyed. And so, so targeting its firmware. Yeah, probably. software and firmware, exactly. And as we've talked about before, the Internet of Things, devices, smart homes, TVs, fridges, kettles, lighting, security cameras are proliferating and are going into all of our houses. And one of the trends is that the security of these things is awful, like really, really bad. And we've already had a couple of really major attacks that have taken place by criminal networks of hackers taking control of lots of these devices all over the world and then sort of making them all on command in a sort of botnet style attack a single place, causing a lot of damage and ultimately denial of service attacks which take things like banks offline and can be very disruptive. So what this guy has done as a sort of digital vigilante is create a piece of software, a worm if you like, which scours the internet looking for these vulnerable Internet of Things devices and then bricks them. Which is terrible, I suppose, if you own a fridge and suddenly... Game over. Yeah, right, game over. You come down... I mean, literally, one of the things it can do is a particular type of kettle. And once your kettle is bricked, you can't make tea in the morning. Can you imagine anything worse for our English listeners? You come down in the morning to find your kettle irreparably that, damaged. That's pretty bad. I mean, I, I love a cup of tea in the morning. I'm, I'm known for loving a cup of tea. Uh, but I'm thinking about the freezer. The freezer, you know, imagine if you're sausage has gone soft uh, you know that would be a disaster yeah. wouldn't it nothing worse than a soggy sausage soggy sausage uh, um, in your freezer in your freezer definitely in your freezer melted so, ice your you know, strawberry splits are ruined the, the vodka you keep in the top drawer might be slightly warmer than you'd like it to be yeah terrible the, mil- the terrible milk's times. off and your kettle's broken anyway that's it so you need the vodka at that point but just an amazing article about this guy and, and the work that he's doing and Definitely up for debate whether he's doing good or bad, but I thought a really interesting story to share about the new age of vigilante and, and the sort of thing we might all expect to see more of in the years to come. Yeah, I mean, I suppose it feels like a great type of vigilante to be. It doesn't really need a ripped T-shirt or a cap or anything, and you don't need to really put any, like, face paints on or anything like that. You can just kind of do it from home. Yeah, I'd like to think he face paints up a bit when he sits there banging out the code for uh, for Brickabot. Who knows? <laughs> Let's hope so. Let's hope so. That's um, a great mental image, isn't it? An angry hacker typing away with face paint on. Imagining he is like a sort of vigilante from, I don't know, 80s New York streets. Oh, you think like bandana? Yeah. Eye mask. Something like that. Um, so um, we're going to be talking about Ted in a minute, but a couple of other sort of regular features to talk about. The first one of those, something from the hype curve. We wanted to do something that fed into the Ted stuff we're going to talk about. So the thing I've picked from the hype curve this month is Hyperloop. Uh, Hyperloop, as, as Jim wisely pointed out to me before we started recording, might be referred to as something different on the uh, hype curve. 
perhaps something like vacuum pod transport or something like that. What was that, Rob? Vacuum pod transport? Oh. Sounds like just the sort of thing I want to buy. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You, you and me both. I mean, particularly when you find out it travels at 600 miles an hour and they're going to build them to get us from city to city in the future. But Hyperloop is yet another incredible idea, I guess, from the brain of Elon Musk, the, the man behind Tesla, SpaceX and so on. And we'll talk a bit more about him later in the episode. But Hyperloop is this notion that if you use the principle of vacuum in a sort of big tube or tunnel, you can fire a pod down these tunnels at an incredibly high speed. And his his mission is to create a closed loop transport network that will basically mean we have 600 mile an hour trains is kind of the quick and easy way to explain this, but could potentially completely transform the way we travel. There's talk of LA to New York in under an hour in the future and, and things like that, which would be just transformational. I mean, as transformational as low cost air travel has been, I think, for, for movement of people and, and so on. So Hyperloop is absolutely the thing from the hype curve for this month. And yeah. uh, one to go and have a read about. Just thinking about that, I, you know, I would definitely open an office in LA if I could get from New York to LA in an hour. Right. Because it's sunny there. I mean, I'd live on the south coast somewhere. Or, or you know what, Jim? I would have stopped renting in London and I would go and buy myself a nice townhouse in Scotland for like 50 grand, live like a king, and then hyperloop my way to London for my meetings. It'd be wonderful. So um, <laughs> the future is bright if, uh, if Elon has anything to do with it. And maybe that brings us nicely on to our next segment, Tech I'd Like to Bring Back. Jim, any thoughts on that for this month? Yeah, well, I, I've got some friends that made a film called 808 about the 808 drum machine from Roland. And originally, so back um, in the 80s, late 70s and 80s, drum machines were just made to replicate in a quite synthetic way the sound of drums so that people could work out what drum beats they want or so that they could write a song to them they were never intended to become really part of the recorded music so it was like a, it was like a metronome almost like a studio tool exactly yeah, yeah. It, was, it was a studio tool they were often built into organs so it was just so you could you could play a little keyboard line and you could have a little drum beat going on kind of like the ones you know when you're at school that had a latin beat on yeah, them yeah yeah i remember them well um, but there's uh, one particular drum machine that became a huge part of music particularly hip hop but it's also been used in in rock and pop and that is the Roland 808 uh, and I guess what's important to know about it is there's some fascinating things about it as a product so only 12,000 of them were ever made right and part of the reason that, that they stopped making them is when Roland created them they used broken transistors right that that made some of the vibrating noises wow. inside it and so he he was able to buy really really cheap parts that no one else wanted and build them into this drum machine and towards the end of the run they were no longer able to get these broken parts so they just stopped making it but what they had really no idea of was that, that, that over the course of the 80s this machine was becoming a phenomenon uh, and people like the Beastie Boys used it huge stars of, of, of hip-hop and then, you know, even in much more recent songs, people like Usher on Yeah, it's it's an 808 drum sample. And in, in everyone's sort of computer-based sample libraries, it's the 808 that is the classic electronic drum sound. Wow. And so you've got this thing that's completely sort of transformed people's lives and musical history, uh, of which the original creator had no concept of how it was going to be used and just really created it as this little device for trying to help people write songs to. 
Well, there we have it. So the, the tech we would bring back is the Roland 808, which it sounds like we might many of our listeners may have listened to today even, uh, at least Absolutely. in sample form. So what an incredible bit of kit. And you said there was a documentary you watched? Yes, there's a documentary. It's on Apple Music, uh, and I think it's maybe available on iTunes as well. Um, and it's made in partnership with Atlantic Records, I think, to, to help get lots of the artists together. Fantastic. Well, we'll definitely share that one for our, for our listeners in the show notes. And I, I, I look forward to watching it. I need to. I think I'd really enjoy that. It sounds great. Loads of very famous interviews in it. Diplo's in it. Like, you know, you know, loads yeah. of people that are musicians being painfully cool, no doubt. Yeah, Phil Collins is in it. You know, he was the only person in the documentary who actually kind of used it how it was originally intended, huh. which was to help him sort of work out what drums he wanted to do and things like that. Cool. And so, Jim, it's TED time. Today's episode is all about TED, and as we said before, we're being joined by Dan later today to talk about his fantastic TED Talk, but I thought maybe it would be fun for us just to talk about one of the many great TED Talks we've both seen that we really enjoyed and and unpack it a little bit together. So why don't I start by asking you, Jim, what is a TED Talk that's meant a lot to you and that maybe you've got a lot out of over the years? Yeah, so the one that springs to mind is Dan Pink, who wrote a book called Drive, and essentially his TED Talk... Yeah, great book. It's essentially a TED Talk, which is a very, very neatly summarised version of of his book, uh, where he talks about the science of motivation. Right. Some of the things that are sort of key from it are, uh, he talks about Atlassian, actually, as a company. He talks about the open source code movement and really how people choose to spend their time and and some experiments that have taken place on that. Now, interestingly, the thing about Dan Pink is he didn't actually do any of the experiments himself. Oh, really? He brought together lots of research papers from other people and made it all very consumable. So is that why some people think he's a bit of a charlatan, because it wasn't his work? Because I've heard, I bump into people every so often who are a bit negative about Dan Pink, and I'm always really surprised, because I... I discovered that work through him, as it sounds like you did, and, and, and I found it just incredibly well articulated in a way that really stuck with me, which I guess is, is what a lot of people find. Yeah, I think it's perfectly, I mean, it's a, it's a big question, but yeah. I think it's perfectly acceptable to read a bunch of other people's research and make that really accessible to a mass audience. And I think that's, but I suppose it's like, let's recognise what the skill there is. The skill is interpreting some things and making it appealing for a mass audience. Right. Um, and I think he did a great job of that and he popularised it and uh, and that's that's huge. And he's a really smart guy as well in his own right. And, of and, 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 yeah, yeah. You know, I'm sure. And a great writer too, you know, which is no, no mean feat, so... Yeah, absolutely. Um, so really what, what it comes down to is that, that, that some experiments took place where people wanted to find out whether by offering people financial incentives, were they more motivated? Right. And they found out that apart from for very basic mechanical tasks, so as soon as anything that required any level of cognitive ability or skill, actually money had no real effect on people's productivity and how likely they were to be uh, successful or achieve more at that thing. And they actually found that what has a major impact on that is autonomy, mastery and purpose. So can someone choose how they do something themselves? Are they able to continually get better at something? And is there some overarching vision that makes them feel like what they're doing has some kind of reason? And I think, um, you know, really it's illustrated by things like the open source uh, code movement of why do people work all day in a job and then go home and do the same thing for free yeah um, and we we talked about that one earlier and and i think and the example of like you know why do people who are never going to be incredibly successful musicians uh, bother learning an instrument uh, in their adult lives no absolutely that's that's the example that for some reason always stays with me from that talk is the, is the guitar one um, and i suppose yeah it's, it's a fascinating talk and it's one that i've used really 
extensively when working with organisations trying to transform how people sort of treat their staff, how people think about what it is to run a good place of work. And it's massively influenced the place of work that I've tried to create starting my own company because it really sat with me as something that had been succinctly put as a really what it makes to work in a great place. And so mm. I've used that and it's had a huge impact on my life because hopefully I've created a company in Manifesto that's pretty good to work at. And that TED Talk impacted me in that way. Yeah, and look, I'm you know here I am pretending I'm I'm naive about this talk, but I must concede it was a huge part of my sort of formative career as well was really understanding the, the truth about what motivates people and and relating to that myself. You know, where before I set Wildhive up, I was in a position where I sort of discovered the movement that uh, I think Google pioneered this, where if you give your team a day a month to spend on whatever they want as long as it's something for good it's an incredibly transformational thing and it was something I was able to implement you know as an employee and and I definitely took a lot of the learnings from that piece with me as I went into the Wirehive journey and yeah it's incredible right when you when you really understand the code of what makes someone happy and, and content you can create a place where they genuinely love to work and isn't that it's just such a joyful experience to have been able to do that and I think we've both lucky enough to say we've, we've done that in our, in our businesses most of the time so we'll try our best yeah certainly have a good go anyway um, so tell me about a TED talk that you've enjoyed Okay, so I seem to bang on about Elon Musk all the time on this podcast, but I'm not going to stop today because Elon is one of the few talks that has been released from this year's TED, which was held in Vancouver in February into March. It was quite a long event. And it was an interesting one because it was more of a chat format. Yeah, it was sort of fireside chat, wasn't it? But what was really interesting is, I can never remember the name of the guy who interviewed him, but he he, he did almost exactly the same format of interview with him, I think it was 10 years ago or, or seven years ago. And it's fascinating seeing the talk now and then going back and watching the old one because the stuff that he was being asked about then he's delivered right like back then he was talking about SpaceX one of his many incredible business ventures around being able to do space flight with reusable rockets which at the time was just the most crazy idea and everyone thought he was mad today he's done it right he's fired these rockets they've taken payloads to space and they've landed and they could reuse them so I think people take Elon pretty seriously these days, even when he says things that sound wacky and outlandish. And so lots of great stuff in the 45-minute talk, and we don't have time to talk about all of that today. But the one thing I would just bring out of it was this new venture he started called The Boring Company. Did you see this? I did see it. Yeah, he's uh, he's got a play on words going on. He does indeed have a play on words. And I, I suspect the internet may be partially to blame for that. But The Boring Company is boring, ha, 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 as in drilling. And it's a company that is creating tunnel networks, essentially. I encourage anyone listening to this to go and watch the video because the CGI mock-up of this thing is mind-bogglingly cool. What they're essentially doing, and they're starting in LA, and they're actually doing this now. I've heard an interview with the mayor of LA. He's on board. They are doing this. Is digging tunnels underneath Los Angeles, which is pretty crazy, frankly, to, to, to drill a 3D network of tunnels within which they're going to make a network which your car can sort of be lowered down onto from a, an elevator at street level, which takes up about the size of a parking space. Uh, and then on a kind of individual, almost like train carriage that your car comes down the elevator on, you're placed on a railway system. It's kind of a skate, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, a car skate, as he put it. And then you're propelled along using nothing more than electricity at around 200 miles an hour uh, from A to B, where you come gracefully up in another elevator. And, you know, why on earth would anyone do this? Well, the aim is to completely eliminate congestion and to, you know, as Elon put it, sitting in traffic is one of the most painful and frustrating things in our lives, particularly in L.A., and 
he plans to completely remove that problem from our lives. And he's being really forward thinking here because one of the other businesses he works on, which he's well known for, is Tesla, which is all about building autonomous cars powered with electricity. And the point he makes is that when those go mainstream, these sort of shared ownership autonomous vehicles, traveling like that will become the cheapest way to travel and certainly the most convenient. So there's a really big chance actually that we might see a quite a big uptick in the number of cars on our roads. And so he's he sort of seems to me to be thinking ahead of his own problem here and trying to come up with the solution to the problem that he knows he's gonna create which I think is very smart and, and, and frankly very interesting. But just to kind of come full circle on our piece from the hype curve on Hyperloop, almost by accident it seems, it turns out that the tunnels could reasonably easily, I mean easy as a relative term here, but relatively easily be retrofitted with Hyperloop pods, which could then travel at up to 600 miles an hour. And if you think about drilling a tunnel from Paris to London at 600 miles an hour, pretty good on the Eurostar at 200 on and takes a couple of hours. If you could do it in 15 minutes, I mean, incredible stuff. So just an amazing talk and so inspirational. And, you know, I haven't even got on to colonising Mars and all the other stuff he covers in there. So I, I'd implore anyone to go and watch it. And it really stayed with me. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a good talk. And one of the things I loved about The Boring Company is that he described it as maybe 2 or 3% of his time, and it's mostly just interns working on a it. A hobby, I think he put it as, right? It's a hobby, yeah. An Elon Musk hobby. An Elon Musk hobby, changing transportation for everyone forever. And um, So I was thinking, it's probably about time we got a guest into the studio. It is. Rather than listening to us rant about TED, why don't we bring in the real deal and get Dan in to talk to us about his incredible TED Talk and his experiences giving a TED Talk as well. Yeah, so um, we've got uh, Dan Machen joining us. And uh, just tell us, Rob, how you know Dan. So I first saw Dan talk at a conference called Silicon Beach, organised by the wonderful Matt Desmier down in Bournemouth. Uh, Dan was talking about the brain and the way that marketing and communication and advertising like interacts with our brains from a, a sort of neurological point of view. And I just thought it was such an interesting piece, delivered in a sort of humorous but very informative way had a few beers with him that night, got to know him, and I've been lucky enough to, to sort of see Dan here and there over the years and, and attended the South by Southwest Festival with him that we talked about in episode two. And just a real delight to have him here with us. I, I really enjoyed his talk that I'd watched, you know, long before I invited him to come and join us and, and just thrilled that he's giving us the time and, and, and look forward to getting into it with him. I'm excited to meet him. Great pleasure to welcome friend whose surname I've only just discovered how to pronounce properly, Dan Macon, to our Strong Rooms studio in Shoreditch on what is a lovely, warm Monday evening. Welcome to Studio Dan. Hi, pleasure I, to be here. I'm not sure that was right, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> it was It was close enough. Yeah, happy oh, yeah. with that? On an evening as muggy as tonight, I think it was fine. We'll let it go? Yeah. Okay. I, I was going to go Machen. <laughs> is, that, is that better? That's fine. I'll okay. go with that one. <laughs> Great. Well, tonight we're here to talk about TED and the amazing TED Talk that you recently gave, The Unchanging Man. I wondered, what gave you the inspiration for it? What was the kind of beginning of the idea? Was it something you thought about for a long time, or was it something that sort of came to you quickly? It was actually, um, it's a very relevant question. It was, it was actually something that me and a guy I used to work with called Felix were really interested in. And I think we used to rail against the constant things that we come up against in advertising which is there's no such thing as kind of new behaviors it's just behaviors framed by technology and so interestingly we we thought fundamentally that was uh, a load of rubbish so we set out to really investigate that and I think that was born out of particularly my quite rabid 
technological behaviours. So I was renowned for being awake at 3am sending messages to Felix about either ideas we've had or, you know, um, things that I thought were important at the time. So really that that's what sparked it and that's what led to some neuroscience research that we did. So we actually engaged some partners to do that. Yeah, and uh, fascinating stuff in, in, in your talk. So maybe you could tell us a bit more about that research and what was involved in that. Cause it was yeah, sure. So, um, so we, we very rapidly dipped a toe in the ocean of neuroscience and realised that we, we couldn't swim. So, um, <laughs> so we found some guys that could. So we engaged these, these guys called uh, Neurons Inc. that helped us manage the sort of neuroscience study. So we had to essentially build a lab-like environment in our office that we soundproofed and, and master all kinds of stimuli. And then we had various people come in and we were really interested to test how people react to layers of technology. And the biggest part of that was looking at multi-screening. So, you know, what's the difference between someone passively watching TV and what they might absorb from an information point of view and then adding a laptop and a phone? And it, it sounds like a lot when you talk about using those three devices together, but to be honest, that's my average night in the living room. Yeah, right. You might be doing, sounds like a good time. Yeah, you might be doing a bit <laughs> of work. You might be WhatsApping, that kind of thing. Um, and then we, we looked at kind of young and old, male and female, to see is there any truth in the the assertion that women are much better at multitasking than men. So that was an interesting one in itself. So if you're not a neuroscientist by day, uh, what what is your day job? So my day job is I work for uh, at Hey Human. Um, so I'm innovation director for Hey Human. And, and we, we look at a lot of behavioural science. So getting to the crux of why people do what they actually do, what they actually, what they actually do, and if that is actually different from what they think they do. And what was fascinating in this context was that we found that it was markedly the case. So at the start of the experiment, you know, we did some um, interviews with people and they all felt 100% comfortable using their devices and taking things in. And they just described it as, as multitasking, which I think is a sort of cultural norm for us uh, in this day and age. So, so you mean like you challenged them on it and they said, oh no, of course, this will be fine. This is going to have no yeah. impact. I do this every day. Absolutely. Right. And, I, and I think what, what was really interesting, they, they weren't only um, fine about it, they were quite possessive over it. And that's where we really felt that we were onto something a bit unusual because... Um, you know, when you tried to take their phone from them yeah you know. it all got a bit golem like so it was like <laughs> you know it's called the iphone but it's a very short hop skip and a jump from like iphone my phone my precious you know and as soon as you try to even sort of say do you think you use it too much can we you know can we just sort of maybe if you used it a bit less like no I, it's fine just you know I, it's right. my phone i'll use it how i want to sort of basic tenants of addiction right uh, absolutely so yeah it was, it was quite interesting and i think i think that's that's a really interesting one because i think from reading into it a lot more and looking at the research, I think it's it's strong habituation. I don't think it's addiction from the point of view of it might make you a bit twitchy, but you're not going to go out and rob your mate's um, DVD player to fund, okay. fund your iPhone habit. <laughs> well, that's something, something positive yet. at least for everybody. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Could could turn that way pretty <laughs> could quick. Go well, I don't know. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm a bit of a technophile. I'm not sure how I'd how I'd fare if I would remove <laughs> my phone from my house. But um, we could do a week. We could have a challenge, Rob. Should we do a week without a phone? I think you should. No, report back. no, I'm all right. See how you get on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm fine. No, no. So, yeah, see, this is exactly the kind of uh, rejection we were talking about so how did you select participants so we wanted to be as i say wanted to choose quite a broad spectrum of people and we went from people like rob so technophile to sort of older people who might be a little bit less comfortable with technology so really wanted to look at a broad spectrum of behavior 
and just try and come up with some commonalities that we found in terms of the way that people's and I think this is the interesting bit the way that people's brains light up when they use different devices and it was quite quite fascinating in that we found that multitasking was actually something else completely it's a sort of appealing term isn't it multitasking it's sort of the suggestion that we can concurrently do things is an appealing one yeah, although as I've as I've learned from you know listening to Dan and, and other people on the subject, it's it couldn't be further from the truth. It's just simply not how our brains work. And as you know, as a techie, I always thought, oh yeah, it's multitasking. This makes perfect sense. Of course, I don't think like a computer. Actually, it's an entirely different process. And I, you know, in your in your piece, you talk a bit about that. Um, you know, the separation of attention and and the cognitive collapse. I think yeah, you, you yeah. referred to. Maybe you could just expand on that a little. Yeah, bit. definitely. And I think the. Um, you know, and it is fascinating that multitasking sounds like a very efficient process, which is really appealing in sort of our, our modern day culture. Um, but actually, we're not built that way, and the brain's not, you know, wired that way. And I, I think what was, you know, when you start to look at these things on a macro scale, um, and you can even see this from these uh, from USB keys now. You can get USB keys up to sort of 128 gig. I mean, probably even in the time that we're talking, it's doubled again. And I think it's just that sense of largely due to skull size we do have very finite um, volume in our brains and it can only process so much in working memory so I think importantly what we found is that when you actually start to add a laptop and a smartphone every time you do that there's an incremental impact on on what's called cognitive load so that's the working memory of the brain right like ram yeah, exactly like exactly like RAM. Although, <laughs> but it's not a although, although we're not computers, yeah, exactly. But it's a good it's a good analogy in that sense. In terms of work, you know, it's the desktop of the brain. It's the things you can sort of cope with at one time. And as you layer that technology up, we see that distraction increases, your cognitive load increases, and you start to lose emotional engagement, and you st- you start to lose recall. So but across you know, all of the different devices, that exactly, concurrently, right? and all the different people. Interesting. So really interesting. Although we had different, you know, different types, um, and the youngsters were very bullish about their ability to do everything at once. They all suffered from this sort of cognitive overload, and we saw it from sort of single task focus, sort of ninety percent recall on, on kind of what was going on in the background, to when you've got a laptop and a mobile phone, that would almost halve every time you did it. So you end up with like 30% so they could recall like one in three of the messages that might be going on in the background so interestingly and in this talk it kind of the interest started out from um, a communications point of view and how does that impact people's recall of like branded messaging right in and terms of marketing to them and how to position yeah, effectively and what yeah. language to use and all that yeah. good stuff and I, and I think from that it's broadened out into more of a personal interest about what does this mean for us as people so you know I think if you think most of the time there's a device between you and your partner or you and your family you know what is that actually doing to us from a sort of uh, a genuine attention point of view in that we're we're always kind of half listening so yeah that's kind of where we came from I'm guilty for sure oh likewise (laughs) Jim and I both sort of paused and, and stared at each other there I mean, our interactions with each other are broadly involving at least one other form of technology at the same time. But yeah, it's 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 hard, isn't it? I think it's a normal scene in any household up and down the land to be with your loved ones, partner, children, whatever it might be, and to have at least one screen on the go at the same time, if not two. And if we're really saying that the people we love are getting at best 50% of our attention most of the time, that's a shocking state of affairs, isn't it? So I think one of the things is that I sort of feel like I know this in my core because at work I make great efforts not to take laptops into meetings and just to have my <laughs> moleskin book. But in my personal life, I don't dedicate 
near, nearly as much energy to yeah. being focused. No, absolutely, and work's a really good example. And I think the the, the demon here is is email. It's it's mm. so detrimental, I think, to your focus at work. And I think you know, as, as I say, we we got to this cognitive collapse state in the study where people, once they were operating in three devices, would just go into flatline. So they were still looking at the TV, for example, but they were just not taking it in anymore. So that's that's really interesting from the point of view of a lot of the rubbish that we love on telly, Gogglebox, um, Grand Designs, you yeah. know, things like that is very passive. And right. I think this almost vegetative state in terms of evening viewing is probably in some way based on the fact that we've we've expended all our mental energy. So you know, I think I think uh, for us, we found that what people thought were, was multitasking was actually task switching, which is a psychological term that describes flitting between channels with a kind of a, a cost for comprehension every time that you change channel. Right. So I think when you start to look at that, it starts to frame your love affair with technology in a slightly different way, and perhaps frames the uh, the programs that commissioners are. I'm putting their money behind as well, right? That's my first dates, you know. Yeah, suddenly makes a lot of sense. That sort of very, I I guess, programming that works in a snapshot as well. So even if you only watch 30 seconds of every five minutes, you can still take something from it and it's interesting. It's one of my absolute pet hates, the... the, um, if I'm watching a documentary, I do actually tend to focus on it. But if you if you watch certain documentaries, they have so many recaps of the previous Absolutely. information yeah. because of they've clearly noticed that people's behaviour has changed and, and for second screen sort of behaviour, that they've changed editing. It's, it's had a fundamental impact on how television is made totally and how programming agree. is made. Yeah. And, um, and then for those of us that are actually trying to pay attention, it makes it deeply, deeply irritating. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. And I think what's, you know, what's fascinating is... Um, perhaps in some ways, you know, weather, weather included, we're kind of slightly behind what's across the Atlantic. Right. And I think in the USA, you have that the whole time in terms of coming up next or previously. Um, but the previous recaps were what happened two minutes ago. Mm. But that's yeah. actually becoming increasingly required because we're on these devices all the time. So it's we're paying, you know, constant partial attention the, to kind of what's going on. The cuts of programming on home and garden TV in the States <laughs> um, are such that you see a bit of the next programme before an ad break and kind of what you're referring yeah. to. And I, I did a road trip um, 18 months ago across California and um, I became addicted to Love It or List It, uh, which uh, Kirsty and Phil made a UK version of. But just because I, I was there to relax and I suppose it became a sort of synonym for relaxation was... Yeah lying on a hotel room bed um, imbibing home and garden television. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a fascinating thing, but I, th- I think it's definitely got to the stage, and, I, and I, I'm kind of like an ex-smoker now a bit, so I was I was the worst at it, and now I'm kind of a little bit preachy around it in terms of tra- you know wanting to be um, single-task focused. And I think in some ways part of this was born out of the realisation that I, I would, without without being gross, but like on occasion you'd go to the loo if you haven't taken your phone, it genuinely... That's a waste, waste of trip, right? A waste of trip. Yeah. So it's just kind of, you know, often I would go back to the desk, get the phone, return to loop. And it's kind of the modern-day newspaper because, you know, any kind of downtime, bus stop, toilet, whatever, you will have a look at your phone. I think it's no accident. Was it 30% of water-damaged phones have dropped down the loop? Yeah. And that's just indicative of, like, there are some levels of intimacy that perhaps the, the um, you know, the, the, the smartphones have, have violated. So I think, you know, uh, I, I made an analogy in the, um, in the talk about a hammer and just saying the social norming we have around 
mobile phones and i wanted to actually do, I, I wasn't confident enough confident enough to stride on stage like a psycho clutching <laughs> a hammer when i did the talk yeah. but i would have loved to have done Wrestled it to the and ground. So just placed it on the ground with slightly nervous laughter from the audience no doubt and just said don't worry it's on silent you know and it's just <laughs> yeah. kind of i think some of those things you've you, got to do it if you I, I think it would be great to do an experiment where you just transpose a phone with a hammer for a week and just see how uncomfortable it makes people and yet we put it on the table in meetings you know face up face down which really says i'm not that interested in this meeting exactly to your point and i think then equally toilet or pub you know i, I think the worst thing if you if you still with your hammer out in the pub yeah with your hammer out on the table be misconstrued but, exactly but i think the worst thing is when you go out if you do have the misfortune to go out to a restaurant on valentine's day for example and you see a couple <laughs> oh opposite each other instagramming their food you know, rather than rather than looking uh, at each other, it is shocking. So I might be guilty of that one. Yeah, you probably are. Some dear friends of mine, actually two couples I know, have done this. I think sort of almost accepting that that is a, a reality is they've set up like separate feeds, which is one of them taking photos of the other one taking photos of food. And so... <laughs> um, Almost like they can participate in the moment as well. And, and I actually, I don't particularly enjoy following the food photos, but I really enjoy following the, the meta version, <laughs> photos of photos, which is great. Well, that, that's kind of um, postmodern yeah. ironic. So that's, that's, it is. that's reasonably funny. It's yeah. allowable. Shout yeah. out to Adam Howard. Yeah. I, um, went, um, I went to see Josie Long years ago when the, the, the um, I guess the idea of taking photographs of food was a nonsense. And um, yeah. she had a, pretty much a whole comedy set about a man who'd photographed his breakfast for a whole year, which would now just be a run-of-the-mill thing yeah, to do. exactly. Exactly. So I think I think what was once comedic lunacy is now the norm. So it really, I, that's really what we started to look at. And I suppose from an agency point of view, we we've come up with like brain friendly creative principles as to how how we can speak to people in a way that's easier to process. So I think that's kind of the work aspect of it. I suppose from a people side as well, which is equally interesting, is just the the notion of the sort of nascent movement in Silicon Valley where you can start to see these kind of individuals going, hang on a minute, this is not what technology was supposed to do. Yeah, I mean, it's good to sort of bring us on to perhaps the ethics of this because as as we as, as sort of people that work in digital or technology or creative industries, where is our responsibility line? A client comes to us with a brief saying, I want to sell more widgets. And we're like, we kind of know how the brain works. So we can make that happen. And, and, and where, where's the balance of, of, of how seriously we should take our responsibility to not ruin people's brains or just use things we know about how humans work yeah. to our advantage? I think it's a really interesting question. I think at the moment, the balance, unfortunately, is skewed by VC value. So it's, it's ultimately about time on site, time on app. And so I think the motivations are not aligned currently with what's either ethical or right in terms of our motivations to help people live their lives better. But I think that hopefully will start to change. So I think there's a growing realisation of kind of attention as the most precious commodity that, that we have these days. And I think as we move on, I think we all have all had those Netflix nights where it's just one more episode at half one in the morning and you wake up feeling tired and slightly slightly used the next day. <laughs> a, whole, I, a whole different version of Netflix and chill. But, um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I, just as I harrowing. Think, yeah, let's, let's say it's Breaking Bad, for example, as was. But it's kind of, you know, a lot of those have been designed like Flash Gordon used to be. So it's, it's a cliffhanger that yeah. just leaves you desperately wanting more. And, and I think be it Netflix or be it the you know the notifications on Facebook for example are not red coloured 
by chance. These things have all been thought about in terms of what's the audio stimuli that we need around it, what's the colour that will most likely prompt an immediate response. So red being the colour of kind of danger and you know alert. And I, and I think that's what we're going to start to see more of. There's a guy in Silicon Valley called Tristan Harris who's who's a great kind of vanguard of that kind of movement. And so uh, I understand from from your piece and, and talking to you before we started recording, you know, Tristan is is sort of driving that movement and hopefully is one of the first people to really stand up for thinking a bit more sensitively about what's good for us, not what is good for our VCs. And I, I guess that's kind of your point, right? So are you sort of seeing the grassroots of improvement there from from your, your reading and research? Does it look like it's starting to change that time? I, th- I think so. And I think what's great as well is, it, see, he, he's an ex-Googler and he, he famously wrote this memo in Google around, um, you know, which is very Jerry Maguire from the <laughs> point of view of should we not be oriented more around helping people curate their life and almost stay focused on the important things and we become the, the kind of Alfred to their Batman, uh, <laughs> which is really commendable in that that was actually quite a dangerous memo to write. And I think it's interesting and, and quite indicative that he had to leave Google to actually then you know sort of see through his ambitions in that direction so he founded yeah. a movement called time well spent and i think importantly though he's not he's not about demonizing technology and, and nor do i think we should because i just think you cannot detechnologize the world i have so many conversations with people where they say well my kids just won't won't have an ipad i just think that's, that's you're, not, you're like get real right yeah i just i genuinely think that's not a real solution i think it's interesting what, what tristan talks about in that he advocates some techniques which just bring a bit more mindfulness to the way that we use technology. It reminds me of the soft voice of Andy from the Headspace app. <laughs> Have you ever listened to Andy? I haven't, yes. Dan. Yeah, I know, I know Headspace, yeah. It's great, exactly. That's what we need more of. And, you know, a lot of the nudges that he gives are very gentle. So, you know, I've, I've done a few of these. I mean, primarily, and I'm sure we all have suffered from this before, it's shutting down notifications. So just the more you could take the noise off, you take the vibrate off in terms of all the different platforms that, that notify you, that's one of his principal things. And it's it's amazing that um, you know he alludes to um, this psychological experiment called the never-ending soup bowl, which was where they piped soup into the bottom of these bowls to see how much people would continue to eat. And they on average eat 73% more soup. But but don't you know? Don't report feeling any fuller or more satisfied. And I think that's that's exactly like our notifications. You know, there's this endless stream of stuff, and that's kind of what it's designed to be. But it doesn't leave you feeling more satisfied. And if you were going to have an endless bowl of soup, what flavour would it be? <laughs> uh, chicken. Chick- wow. Yeah, yeah, chicken. Wow. Straight in there with chicken. Yeah, no yeah. hesitation. How about you, Rob? Oh, oh, I don't know. I'm. I'm not sure of my soup choice as Dan was. I would, I'd probably go classic tomato if I was if I was going to eat a bottomless bowl of soup. I'm with you on that. What about you, your t- fellow tomato man? I had some at the weekend. There we go. It wasn't bottomless. <laughs> it was just a normal can. Excellent. Um, so, so yes, yeah, so I think I think notifications is one thing. I think the. There Excellent are. work getting back on track, by yeah. the way. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. going to segue. Yeah. Didn't see us. Yeah, didn't go unnoticed. Before, before we go into an impromptu Hind sponsorship, <laughs> I just thought I'd just thought I'd pull us back. But I think the um, the other thing as well is just kind of just moving a, a degree of mindfulness into launching apps. The amount of people that launch Facebook without even being really aware that they've done it because they just see it as an extension of their sort of social arena. Right. It comes to sort huge. of muscle memory, doesn't yeah, it? Definitely. Yeah, exactly. And I, and I think that's the thing. And so he was just advocating, 
you know, moving it off the home screen. So you have to actually type it to launch it. So there's a degree of intentionality in, in what you do. So just introducing 10% more friction to the process, just yeah. to try and make you a little bit more conscious about it. And another thing you talked about in your fantastic TED talk that I'd never heard of was the idea of how with Fitbit and all of these activity tracking pieces of technology we're quantifying our movement but you were yeah. talking about quantifying our use of digital technology and, and there are a couple of apps you mentioned that I thought were were fascinating and maybe you could just talk a bit about that like how much time we're actually spending on our phones every year yeah and I, and I think that's I think it's, it's really it's really worthwhile just looking at how many hours you spend on it per day so so yeah I think I, I think it's if you start to do that it's quite it's quite shocking as just what that adds up to so mm. I was spending six weeks a year on my phone when you put it like that right it's... yeah and so you know that not only in terms of uh, reaching for your phone before giving your partner a cuddle in the morning and all the rest of it is, is one aspect of it it's six weeks it's like for summer holidays yeah, exactly it's the summer holidays and it's kind what of i wouldn't you... do for six weeks right it's... yeah exactly and I, I think that's in a way we are victims these days of saying oh, if only i had the time if only i had the time i'd learn the guitar or i'd do you know i'd do something useful i, I might even do some DIY. Who knows? Ooh. But um, I think they, it's it's just quantifying it is to understand it, and then you can start to make better decisions about it. And I think another huge aspect of that, which I'm sure we're all guilty of, and I watch your faces when I say it, but is is having the phones in the bedroom at night. So just kind of, uh, you know, eighty seven percent of people apparently touch their phone between midnight and five a.m. Eighty seven percent, and that has huge impact. Uh, oh, on sleep. not not every night though. I would imagine yes. So that was the, that was the stat. I mean, it's kind of you know, I my phone is is within arm's reach throughout the night, and it's the way that I check what time it is. Yeah. But every time you activate that screen, you know, the whole research around blue light, etc., um, is it has massive impacts on your kind of sleep cycle, and yet we all claim that we need to use it for our alarm clock, and you know, yeah. it's kind of just buy a digital alarm clock make do yeah i mean yeah. one thing i would say M- make do <laughs> make do with it i mean an alarm clock would be perfectly acceptable yeah. as an alarm clock rob <laughs> i mean my uh, alexa uh, set an alarm <laughs> clock for 6 30 a.m and uh you've just ruined the lives of everyone listening to this podcast um i recently bought an alarm clock and uh i still keep my phone on my bedside table so now i i'm guilty even more so because i have no excuse and it, it, you're right though and double dropping yeah well Less fun than the last time I double dropped, but you know, still quite fun. Um, what I would say, however, is that it's nice to see the likes of Apple and, and Google with the Android ecosystem bringing in things like the blue light filtering now. So if you're not haven't got this turned on on your phone, absolutely go and turn it on. You can automate this process. So after a certain time, the sort of color temperature of your phone screen changes and becomes much more. Uh, red ultimately which is much more reflective of night time and helps to kind of slow down your brain and bring you into that that sleepy cycle for for a good night's rest and hard to say if you can sort of pinpoint whether it makes any difference but yeah um, i was on a flight recently where it claimed had lighting that did that it can't do any harm yeah, can the it red 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 shift light but i think it's kind of, yeah i think it's i don't know it's, it's supposed to be the equivalent of a cup of coffee picking your phone up well wow. per se and i think the um I think that you know if you if we can get into a phase of thinking where we're okay to put our phone away from us for the duration of the night, um, then I think that would be a great thing. Because the trouble is, no matter what color the light is, 
you know you start looking at BBC News you look at Facebook whatever it might be if you wake up in the night then I'd say your brain's activated so so the more we can sort of stay I think in the sleep phase and have the bedroom as away from kind of daytime activity the better um, so I'm trying but I'm not there yet but it is a gradual it's like giving up it's like giving up smoking it's kind of I've, I've put the tabs down but I'm definitely still wearing patches okay that's halfway there I mean um, a story about someone I know who's going through this, a guy called Jonathan Seal from Mando, he built a charging station in his hallway, like a really fancy one with a slot for his, him and his wife and his two kids' phones. And he mandated that when you go upstairs to bed, phones go in the charging station. So there's no genius. excuse. Yeah, genius. They're charging, they're there, you know, they're safe. Um, I have no idea how that experiment's going for him. The fact <laughs> I've not heard from him for some time might be an indication of... Uh, success. Success or, or dramatic <laughs> failure, as, it, as the case may be. But it... It's it's you know it's interesting that people are starting to wake up to this stuff you know yeah. and it's nice that you know here we are talking about it but you know I am hearing more of this type of conversation out there like I think people are finally starting to become a little bit more aware of you know the potential damage that all of this technology is doing to them to their brains to their sleep patterns and um, you know I think like you were saying you know the whole quantum quantifying it just being aware is half the battle right just understanding at least making a conscious decision about whether you are or aren't going to do this stuff to your body and brain for me is a huge step forward so definitely um, and i I think as well it's not it's not to then demonize tech you know it's just ultimately it will do what we ask it to do i think the there is a bit of a cop-out at the moment where it's like don't blame the technology is just a tool don't blame the tool is a tool with tens of thousands of people that are be- that are trained in a persuasive technology lab in silicon valley around behavioral design yeah so and that's the is, thing people really don't understand yeah, right so it's it's understanding the you know the sort of the puppet masters on the other side of the screen that specifically know how to get a response from you so i think once you do understand that you can treat it with a you know a sort of a due degree of caution um or a due degree of control but i think it's then you know what kind of interface innovation is there so like um you know amazon echo for example where we can get away from screens a little bit and we can still have the connection and the interactivity that that we that we want or need but we don't always have to be staring at screens because i think that's the bit where we're really literally taking our face away from the world and just becoming introverted in that in that downward that downward way that you'll see on um tube and train platforms up and down the country where you look down and it's just like oh it's so nine depressing. out of ten people are just staring at staring at this, this four inch screen you know i mean we yeah we, we talked about this briefly didn't we earlier today it's just as, as londoners jim dan and i despair i think is the only way we could put it i'm talking for them i'll talk for myself i despair <laughs> when i look up on a train and I also am staring at my phone because that's what I'm looking up from and realise that every single other person on a carriage of 500 people is staring at their phone. I mean, it's just, it's a, it's amazing. I think for me, the thing I reflect on in that moment is how quickly it's got there. Like, I'm sure I can quite vividly remember a time only two or three years ago where that just wasn't how it, how it was on those trains. People read books, people read papers, and it seems like it's just flipped. It's and we're there now. Yeah. And the screen is that all commanding item in everyone's hand it's a very strange dystopian picture of of the world we live in sometimes so i was gonna say i feel like i'm very fortunate because i walk to work uh, but actually quite often i'll walk to work staring at my phone so (laughs) (laughs) 
You're the worst. You're the zombies that yeah, walk the yeah, streets exactly. crashing into everybody. Yeah. Right? Although I say that, I very nearly headbutted a statue on the way here today, staring <laughs> at my phone. So there we go. It was, I was definitely thinking about what you're saying about moving things off the front screen and things, and, and that sort of like just sometimes I'll. I'll, I'll not really want anything and I guess this is the behaviour that where, where I just go in and I'm like which one shall I look at and I make a quick decision and then I'm like that was quite a disappointing experience yeah. that's not given I've not no dopamine hit from that um, and, and then you go into all of them and you go actually all of them were quite disappointing yeah yeah and I think you know what I hope is that the likes of Facebook will eat itself because ultimately now you go someone was talking about Facebook the other day and and described it as a noisy shopping mall when occasionally you'll see a friend on, the, on an opposite escalator, you know, just <laughs> sort great. of forlornly wave. That's about right, isn't it? Amidst the clickbait, you know, and I think that's that's the worst thing. You do, it, it's starting to get like a modern version of alien abduction where you kind of, you go into, you know, one, one video and then suddenly you're watching something else about a sneezing panda or something like that and 40 minutes have elapsed, you're facing completely opposite direction to where you were. <laughs> And you just ge- have these genuine moments where you go, what What was I doing? Yeah. What just happened? Yeah, yeah exactly. So I think, um, you know, just a, a bit more mindfulness about it and being really deliberate about the way we use it is, is the way to go. And I just hope with things like, um, you know, Echo and, and things like that, we're going to get the right mix of, of screen versus more ambient interface where we can actually make this stuff work for us versus us working for the machines. Yeah, I think that's um, a hope. It's a good hope. It's a, it's a challenge to ourselves and, and those who work in our industry. Um, I've got, I guess, a couple of questions that are sort of more TED-related because yeah. this is kind of a TED special. The, the first one of those is, how did your TED Talk come about? And tell us anything special about your preparation for it. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a, it was an interesting one. So it was... Um... So it came about through a friend of a friend who'd kind of seen some stuff and recommended me to this this fantastic guy who runs uh, TEDx Manchester called Herb Kim, and Great um, name. yeah, he he curates some brilliant uh, sort of conferences on all things technology in kind of the north and the northwest, and so that was that was the invite, which was then followed by about two months of terror. I would say. <laughs> so <laughs> the yes. red circle yeah. is coming. Yeah, exactly. So the red circle of pressure, um, which I didn't stray from. I thought it was kind of like you know, apparently you are allowed to pace up and down. Oh, are you? I kind of like I, I thought that of, was the whole fable of dead yeah. is you have to stay in the circle. Well, that was the thing. So I kind of I kind of found myself safely in the spotlight in that space. So I just kind of rock backwards and forwards on stage, as you'll see. But yeah, so the preparation was just kind of learn it, learn it, learn it again, and learn it well enough so that I could I could panic on stage and cock it up without people really noticing. So hopefully I managed to get away with it. But there were bits of the talk that were supposed to be in one section that actually ended up being an entirely other section. So I think, yeah, for anyone who wants to put themselves through it, I'd say, <laughs> you know, do prepare it really well because your your brain goes into a very strange space when you're actually on stage. And it's quite interesting having done business talks to then go and do that because it is a, st- a theatre environment. So was it very um, different? Because I've seen you talk a number of times and you've always struck me as a very confident speaker, great delivery, it's always very polished or it certainly comes across that way. No, thank and, you, but I pay you lots of money to say that, obviously. <laughs> well, <laughs> but was it really markedly different yeah, then? It's, it's to talking of, to your peers at an industry conference or something? I think you get a sense that it's going to be on YouTube much more strongly. So it's kind of, uh, you know, the the chances of making an ass of yourself are 
feel significantly higher. So um, that notch on the tombstone of the internet. Yeah, you know, exactly, okay. exactly. The, the funny thing about the talk on YouTube is it does automatically start a video um, directly afterwards, which was the... <laughs> I just found myself thinking about the video. It was automatically yeah, yeah. starting and <laughs> reflecting on... Yeah, it's <laughs> deep, deeply ironic, deeply ironic. But I think the... Um, yeah, it's a really great experience. So I would definitely advocate it to anyone. And, you know, there's lots of fantastic kind of TEDx's now. Obviously, the main TED in some ways is kind of like for the for the Olympians, right. um, not for us lowly mortals. So it's Once kind of qualified, you know, as it were. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, exactly. So I, I hope to do a bigger one at some stage. But it is it's a really great experience. And I think what's nice, a bit like... Um, so Rob and I, you know, know each other from from South by Southwest, and it's a bit like the guys that go there. Everyone's really interested in kind of the debate around either technology or new thinking, um, in various different spheres, and so you just get this real sense of kind of it's a family of people that are really interested in in new new approaches. So it does feel quite like a a, a warm audience, which is great. But it's fifteen minutes. That's the sort of wow. A crazy thing that you you don't really think about and I, I can't even begin to tell you how quickly that time goes when you're when you're actually on stage because I was kind of done and off before I realized it had happened <laughs> which didn't even have time to start sweating yeah exactly, all over. exactly. Um, so no it's yeah it's a really great experience and I, and I think it was just kind of as, as we've chatted about this this talks kind of evolved from something that started out as a work-based thing and you know how we can create messaging that's easier to process in a sort of packed world and evolved into something I just find really interesting but it's changed the way I work and live a little bit so I will consciously put my phone down now much to my wife's delight so no it's, it's, it's great and I and I think just just having that little bit more consciousness around um you know, I can step away from that WhatsApp group for a while or whatever it might be. I'm told it's very it's good, good though. <laughs> it's good. Yeah. So there's a yeah, there's a WhatsApp group that we have with a lot of the guys from South by, which is uh, so shout out to them. And uh, you know, if you if you step away from it for half an hour, you'll come back and it's 350 missed messages. So you can imagine this is this is quite a full time job to even keep up with that. So best thing to do is just not. Yeah, drift in and out. But yeah, it's, uh... exactly. The notification anxiety, in a way, it kind of breaks you actually. When there's yeah. like three hundred, suddenly you're just like, oh, fuck. <laughs> you know, oh, just leave it. I suppose you can already see in pro products like Slack, they're adapting the interface to help you catch up, so you can look yeah. at all your unread things, the threads and things like that. So, yeah. so yeah, the different companies sort of approach the sort of how do we keep people rewarded, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's a really good balance. You know, if you can find ways to play with the interface where it means you can catch up, but you're not shackled to it then that's fantastic um and, and I just in find... a way that's the first step sorry to interrupt yeah. it's the first step isn't it to kind of freeing people from that bind to the notifications is yeah. is feeling like you can check out for a week and you're not going to be encumbered with this horrendous storm of stuff when you come back yeah. to it so no exactly and i and i think that's starting to happen in what i describe as mature platforms i think with things like snapchat where you've got like snap streaks and so on and they're deliberately trying to create anxiety around, you know, you must stay in touch with each other constantly. And you're getting situations where people are having to give their phones to other people when they go on holiday just to maintain, oh you know, God. the level of contact. Then that's gone too far. The thing that reminds that reminded me of was that the, perhaps one of the things I can first remember doing that was Second Life. Yeah. Where, where people were paying people in other countries to live their second life while they were too busy to live it or while they were at work wow. um, because you earn sort of credit in the yeah. second world by being present and doing stuff 
And so, yeah, I guess it's a, an yeah. extension of a similar sort yeah, exactly. of thing. And in the same way as we now look back on our winged avatar that we were so proud of at the time is a bit naff. I think we'll do that in future. I think we'll sort of look back on this and go, you know, this was the infancy where we were just given a, a mallet and lots of coloured shapes to bang, bang into <laughs> holes, which we did joyously for, you know, a decade. But I, I hope as we move on, smartwatches aren't the answer. Uh, and I'm not even sure if Google Glasses. It's just really a sense of how can what is currently the smartphone go in the pocket or even be in a backpack and how can we get notifications en route that don't have to disrupt us from 90% of what we're supposed to be doing. And I suppose from a Darwinian point of view on that, there's a huge increase in the States and elsewhere in, in pedestrian accidents where they're stepping off the curb and getting hit by things because they're looking at their phone as they're doing it. And I think when the threat is not just a slightly ticked off partner, when it starts to become existential, then it's time to maybe take a step back. That's all going to get sorted by self-driving cars, though. They're going to be looking out for those people, so it'll all be all right. Yeah, iPhone numpties. We have a mandatory week every year in an 1856 community for everyone. (laughs) That'll do it. Well, for me, this has just been an absolute joy to cross-examine you on the finer points of your exceptional talk that I really enjoyed watching online but also talking to you about today I guess any final thoughts guys or anything anything to wrap up I, well, I had one more question yeah, well go ahead I wondered if you had a favourite TED talk to sort of that's a great question yeah, yeah. oh good question um, I think my favourite stroke of insight so there was there was one by a, a neuroscientist lady whose name escapes me. Hopefully, you can edit that bit out. But um, yeah, his name escapes me. But it was it was amazing. She she talks about uh, the experience of having a stroke as a neuroscientist. So she actually is understanding what's going on in wow. her brain at the time. And funnily enough, talks very you know very um, emotionally, obviously and eloquently about an insight into how we connect with each other. So weirdly links back, I think, to kind of the alienation we can we can feel. So I think that was ace, and then obviously the the Brené Brown one on uh, being vulnerable, I thought was fantastic as well. But both, yeah, both of those, I'd see threads of kind of that that desire for connection running through it. So yeah, I think as human beings, that's what we're after. I think it's just technology's amplified that out of all all control at the minute, and we just need to get a bit of that back but those are my favourites. Thanks so much, Dan. All right, pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Alexa, stop. A podcast about how technology is changing our lives with Robert Belgrave and Jim Bowles. Who's starting? I'm I'm now feeling really hesitant that I'm not going to pronounce my friend's surname right. (laughs) Well, honestly, I don't I, mind. Okay. Think of the month of May, yeah. and then Chen at the end. It's fine. Machen. Machen. That's not right. Machen. Machen. Yeah, Machen. Machen. Yeah. Do you want me to take this, Rob? Is it causing great concern <laughs> for you? you. I'll no. just say Dan. I'll have a go. I'll have a go. <laughs> okay. If you have uh, a go, you have a go, and if it, we'll just, really I'll just not, do it. It's really not an issue. Like ninety-nine percent of the time, I get it. Introduced as Dan Mackin. I'm getting it right, man. Dan McKen. I'm getting well. it right. We might leave this in. I warn you. <laughs> Brilliant.